Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition for the last 30 years. It's Rosie on the House. On this beautiful Arizona good morning, welcome to Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition for over 30 years in that entire time. I don't think we've ever sat at a, at a point in time where we've got this much rain in this short of time. Paul Horton from AZ Family sent us over some stats. Before this atmospheric river hit this week, we were already at seven inches just since October. That's our annual rainfall. Average seven inches, is seven is, inches. Okay. And we've had that in just the last quarter. That's over four inches above the normal. Well, October, that one day was like four inches, right? <laughs> was it over one day? It was crazy. It, it was crazy. How about this rain? And unfortunately, it probably will mean a uh, bad fire season because it's going to spurt all the new growth. Uh, but man, yeah, water in the desert. It's precious. And as much of it can just fall out of the sky as. Uh, we can we can save and not have to pump out of the the ground and and rivers. I'm I'm okay with that. Wildflower alert! Be on the lookout. Call us anytime you want to during the week and tell us when when you see a good batch of wildflowers. Oh, on the lookout. Seventy nine from Oracle to Florence is going to be beautiful. There's going to be places all over the state. And speaking of the state, February is a big month for Arizona. Uh, we just turned 107. This Valentine's Day, Arizona turned 107th. If you were on our email newsletter, you saw we gave away 107 state park passes uh, to our email newsletter subscribers. We talked about doing it on the broadcast, and everyone was like, I was like no. no. <laughs> <laughs> We've got too much to do on Saturday. To one giveaway an hour is enough. <laughs> we, love 107. <laughs> we love talking to everybody, but 107 is a lot. <laughs> so we did that in our newsletter this week. And Thank you to the Arizona State Park Passes for providing those. February was also the month that the conversion started when they took the Titan Missile Museum from an active missile site to turning it into a museum. And our staycation winner is traveling to Tubac, Arizona. Actually, they drove down last night in their Sanderson Ford Edge. We had their gift basket with Arizona Highways books. We had Roger Naylor was in last week and left a, a signed copy of Boots and Burger. They got a copy of that. Uh, Coyote Odie's cookie basket. And because it's Southern Arizona, we had to send them a bottle of wine. We called Jack. Hey, are you guys wine drinkers? He said, oh, we'd, we'd enjoy a bottle of if there was one there, so we had Dos Cabezos, who won the Arizona Central's wine tasting competition a couple weeks ago from Sonoy to Arizona, bring a bottle over to uh, his hotel where they're staying. And one of the things that he can do while he's out and about is go see this Titan Missile Museum. You know, that museum, it's south of Tucson, but north of Tubac and north of Green Valley, so it's just nestled right there in the desert. And that actually really ties in with Dad and I, I'm not sure you really have a sense of what the Cold War was like, but when Rosie and I grew up, I mean, there was drills. You were afraid of the word Russia. It was kind of this constant heavy that hung over your head, and it was a, it was a real threat. As a matter of fact, Rosie remembers uh, the Bay of Pigs Cuban Missile Crisis because they lived in the bayou. 
and there was an alert that came out on the news, and Rosie was like seven, and he heard them say, if you live in this in this area by the water, you'd be sure and stay on the first floor and stay low and be ready to leave. And so Rosie's getting all ready to, you know, thinking they're getting one ready. One of eight yeah. kids? Yeah. <laughs> and, Maybe only six at the time, mm-hmm. but. And then he looks up, and there's his mom and dad dressed to go out. To go dancing, he just—he was just appalled. He was didn't sleep at all, so worried about it. But it was a really big no. deal in our era growing up. And now you don't even hardly no. know about it. But no missile was going to ruin date night. No, that's, <laughs> they had their priorities. But I wanted to introduce um, our Arizona listeners to this wonderful Titan Missile Museum, and we have Yvonne Morris, the director of the museum. Good morning, Yvonne. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Romy. How are you? Very good. Very good. And um, so, you know what, why don't you tell people what they will find if they, if they come down to see the museum? Well, the Titan Missile Museum, as you said, it, it, it's located just about 25 minutes south of downtown Tucson, and it's a former operational Titan II missile site. Um, this particular site was part of the 54 Titan II missiles that were dispersed around the United States during the Cold War. The decision was made to preserve it as a museum as part of the Cold War Heritage Program with the United States Air Force. And so when people come to the museum, they're going to actually go underground into the Launch Control Center of the missile site. They're going to learn a little bit about day-to-day life at the site and what the mission of the Titan II was and the role that it played in the Cold War. They're going to get to see a simulated launch sequence as part of their tour. And then they're going to get to go out in the missile silo and uh, stand about 10 feet away from an actual Titan II missile. Now, it doesn't have a bomb on it anymore. It doesn't have the, the propellant loaded, so it's completely safe for everybody. But people will be amazed. Uh, it, there's just a little something for everybody. In that control center, when it was in its operation, would that only control the launch at your site, or could you activate missiles on other launch sites? That's true, Romeo. It would only control the missile at this particular site. So unlike some of the Titan One sites where they had uh, more than one missile that could be launched from there. The Titan II program had one launch control center with one missile. And so there were actually 18 of these missile sites that encircled Tucson during the Cold War. And these missiles, were what was their purpose? Well, the principal purpose of the Titan II comes as a big surprise to people. It was actually peace, peace through deterrence. The United States sort of figured out early on that um, civil defense, a civil defense program that would guarantee the safety of the majority of the population just wasn't achievable. And so the thought was, the thing that we have to do as a country is prevent World War III from happening at all. So the United States developed what was called the Strategic Triad. And the mission of the Strategic Triad was peace through deterrence. The Triad was made up of land-based missiles, like the Titan II, uh, strategic bombers, like the B-52 bombers, and then submarine-launched ballistic missiles. And these three programs working together projected a credible threat 
to the Soviet Union that said to the Soviet Union, even if you launch a preemptive strike against the United States, we have the means to retaliate with such force and devastation that you will die even as we are dying. And that premise is called Mutual Assured Destruction, or MAD, which I think is like the <laughs> best acronym ever for anything, because it just totally describes the, the premise of mine is bigger than yours, so you're, you're going to lose. And um, so for the entire length of the Cold War, Mutual assured destruction and probably a good amount of luck uh, protected the United States and it kept the Soviet Union and the United States from going to real war with each other. Now, what about the other 17 missile sites? Are they all like filled in with concrete? What happened to, to the other 17? And Actually, what, what – go ahead. What made Tucson a site to build all these to begin with? Well, let me answer your second question first, Romy. We're not exactly sure why uh, the Tucson area was chosen, except, well, all of the reasons, because some of them, I think, are still classified to this day. Mm. But what we have been able to determine is um, several criteria that the Air Force considered by just looking at all of the locations of the various missile sites and what they had in common. So the logistics of operating a Titan II missile wing of 18 missiles, it requires a huge amount of support. So first of all, you need a large Air Force base like Davis-Monson. You need it to be located close to a functioning rail line um, so that components can be brought in. To components that go boom. <laughs> yes. And... You know, population density played a role, I think, in um, in the decision of where to place the sites. I mean, in 1963, when they were building these sites, Green Valley didn't really exist. And uh, Tucson was much smaller than it is now. So we think population density played a role. But also what surprises a lot of people is that the congressional delegation from Arizona and the Pima County Board of Supervisors all lobbied to have these sites placed around Tucson because it was such an economic boon to the community. And it really didn't make Tucson any more of a target than it already was because of the, the huge boneyard of uh, aircraft that they store at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. All aircraft from the military, if when they're retired, go to live at the boneyard at, at Davis-Monson. And that's a huge wealth of spare parts and aircraft that can be recalled to active service. And so Tucson was already on the top 10 of the suspected Soviet target list. And so Titan, bringing Titan in to the mix, really didn't make us that much more of a target. So we think that's why Tucson was chosen. And as to what happened to the sites when they were deactivated, the government actually sold them off through the General Accounting Office. Um, people could just buy them 
um, after they were decommissioned. And the decommissioning process uh, consisted of several phases. First, the Air Force would come in. And we'll, and we'll get out. into those phases right after this. We can do a lot here at Rosie on the House, but we can't stop the clock. We're talking with the director of the Titan Missile Museum, Yvonne Morris, here at Rosie on the House. Welcome back to our Arizona Hour, where our state mammal is the ring-tailed cat, but isn't even a cat. This is a true story. And you are more likely to see a Titan missile launch than you are ever to see a ring-tailed cat. <laughs> <laughs> How do you pick a state mammal of an animal you could hardly ever see or find? <laughs> but we're going to get right back to our interview with uh, Yvonne Morris, director of the Titan Missile Museum. Pick right back up where you left off, and then we're going to get into your history because you basically spent your it. life at this, uh, what do you call it, silo, missile silo, Titan missile too? Yeah, I've, yes, that's true. I've spent a lot of my life here. But real briefly, what happened to the missile sites when they were decommissioned is the Air Force took everything out of it that it thought it could use for spare parts. And then they gave out salvage contracts to uh, companies who wanted to come in and salvage the metals and uh, things like that from the missile site. And then... They were basically imploded. A concrete cap was poured over the launch duct, and then the desert was graded back to its natural contours. And then the sites were sold off to private individuals who bought them for a multitude of reasons. Uh, up in Catalina, there's a Methodist church that sits directly on top of uh, the missile site that used to be there. Some people just bought it for the land because it was 10 acres with a well and electricity that was already present on the property. Other people brought it or bought them because they thought, you know, hey, maybe I could dig this out and make a house down here. And that is a whole nother show. <laughs> those things are complicated. Oh, well, I think, Yvonne, your story is so incredible. A lot of times when you go to a museum, you talk to people who have learned about it in books, but you actually lived. Uh, there, you were actually a crew chief. Yes, well, crew commander. I was a crew commander. commander. Uh, yes, stationed here with the 390th Strategic Missile Wing at Davis Monson from 1980 to 1984. So I actually pulled alert at each of the sites around Tucson at one time or another during that time period. And just explain uh, briefly to the to our listeners. I mean, you would go in. You told me it was a crew of four. You go in for 24 hours, and what was that 24 hours like? People often say, wow, it just must have been boring, right? Mm -hmm. And what's that adage? You know, uh, you have long periods of boredom punctuated by uh, short stints of sheer, you know, terror. Or <laughs> A lot of it just depended on the activities that were scheduled uh, at the site that day. A lot of it was really routine and repetitive. But the crew, when we were there, we had two main responsibilities to make sure that the missile was always ready to launch. And then the second responsibility would be to launch the missile upon receipt of a lawful order to do so. So making sure that the missile was always ready to launch required constant vigilance on the part of the crew. We had to inspect every single piece of equipment on the missile site. And the missile silo itself has nine different levels 
filled with air conditioning and pumps, fans, hydraulics, all sorts of equipment that it takes to be able to keep the site functioning and be able to launch the missile. And so we have to inspect that um, during every alert, and that would take about five hours. The rest of the time, we're just constantly monitoring the computers in the Launch Control Center um, that are feeding us information about the various pieces of equipment and the status of the missile. So we're constantly looking for malfunction. The Air Force constantly tested its communication lines, so there was a lot of message traffic coming through all the time. And then you would have different maintenance activities that would be going on that we were responsible for supervising and painting and cleaning. And, you know, the 24 hours usually went by pretty fast. And most of it was routine, I'm very happy to say. Well, I can't tell you how many questions I have. How many... How tall were the missiles? What size were the warheads? Where were the missiles aimed at? How how do you physically launch it? When you launch a, a rocket, we've all seen the space shuttles take off, and there's this huge plume of smoke, and this thing's going off underground. So where is all that smoke going out, and how is the crew not inhaling that? I mean, the, the questions I have just continue to compound, but uh, I'm sure I could get all of these answered coming and taking a tour. That's exactly right. We're going to tell you all about those things. We're going to tell you that the missile's 103 feet tall. We're going to tell you uh, what its destructive capability was. We're going to tell you how the sites were built. I mean, you had to go through blast doors that each weighed three tons, but that a regular person can move with one hand. I mean, that's extreme engineering. And you're going to see all of that and a real missile, and so much more when you come to visit the Titan Missile Museum. Give us a website that we can get dates and, and location and hours. And It is titanmissilemuseum.org. And it is south of Tucson on 19, just uh, right. uh, you know, what about 20 minutes south of Tucson? Right. We're about 20 to 25 minutes south of the interchange where I-10 and I-19 come together. Yvonne Morse, director of the Titan Missile Museum, and if I understand right, the only remaining Titan II missile silo in the country. That's exactly right, Romy. You can't see anything else like this anywhere else in the world. So. I hope all your listeners will come down and pay us a visit. The director of the Titan Missile Museum, Yvonne Morse, here at Rosie on the House. Tuned up and rolling. It's the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. And in addition to the Titan Missile Museum, our staycation winners that are traveling to Tubac this weekend have no shortages of other options that they can do. You have the uh, Tucson La Fiesta de los Vaqueros Rodeo going on. Uh, it's a whole week event. starts this weekend. Uh, the parade's not till next Thursday, but there's still plenty of events going on. You could get stamp, stomped, trampled by a camel if they escape from Camels and Friends again. Tuesday, the <laughs> Pima Sheriff's Office had to be dispatched to two rogue camels that had escaped. Got them. Rounded back up and turned back in. There was an ocelot sighting this week in the southern Arizona mountains. Wow. Get your get your night vision on and go sit in the, the Dragoon Mountains and wait to see an ocelot travel by. You could 
although it's only about a 45 minute as the crow flies from Tubac to Sierra Vista, it's about a two hour drive any which way you cut it. But you can get over to the Fort Huachuca where they have uh, the Buffalo Soldier Museum is exhibiting right now. While you're next to Sierra Vista, you can meander up to Tombstone's Vigilante Days that are happening this weekend. A little celebration of the Wild West on the streets of Tombstone. It's a great time of year to get out and about. The weather is amazing. And, and, and that's just this weekend. This weekend. Just in southern Arizona. You know, our staycation winners down there, we're talking southern Arizona, and they're staying at the Tubac Golf Resort and Spa. Romy, do you know the history of that property? It goes back to 1789 when the King of Spain granted Don Otero, who was 28 years old at the time, a land grant, and that, that's the very spot the Tubac is on, so that that was in the family for a couple hundred years until 1959. And when you go and stay there, they've tried to keep the flavor of the, you know, the stone and the wood and the, and the brick on the ground. And, and the, actually, the actual home is still there. You can tour if you're going to stay there. But it's also a very elegant place, and you can golf. And you know what? If you're a golfer, their golf pro goes by fruit salad. <laughs> that's, her, that's her nickname, but her name is Christy Fowler, and she was the ni- um, 2017 National Golf Pro of the Year. So it's quite an experience where you can go down and experience history and then also have a great golf game or hang out at the spa. And, Jay, you said you've stayed down there a few times. We ha- we've had uh, occasion to be there for a, you know, a couple of meetings uh, through the Nursery Association. It's very nice, whether you golf or not. Um, you know, the... the uh, uh, very southwestern charm architecture and the casita. They're like little casitas instead of hotel. You know, it's, mm-hmm. so they've kept the flavor of of the southwest very nicely. And then the grounds are, are really cool. And, and the view uh, of the Santa Rita's, right? You can oh. see the Santa Rita's, yeah, on one side and the Tumacockeries on the other side. And it's, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a neat spot. And as you mentioned, there's all kinds, you know, I mean, you can go to, you can always go to Nogales and walk across the border and do a little shopping. There's lots of stuff. Tumacockery, which is the old mission, is just, I think, the next exit down. So it, there's a lot of stuff to see. And Green Valley, you've got the pecan. You oh, said, yeah. It, I've driven through the the pecan orchards. Is it a pecan orchard? Yeah. Pecan field? Grove. Grove. Orchard. Pecan mm-hmm. Grove. And what's that I've highway? never gone into the Green Valley Pecan's gift shop. Oh. I hear that's uh, that's some, worth. <laughs> there's, some, there's some cool stuff in there. That's what we use for our pecans every yeah. year when we make our, our gifting of the Cajun pecans. Mm. But what did you say that highway is? The there? old Nogales Highway, Okay, which is the old old highway, and it goes right down through the, in between certain fields of the of the grove. So it, this time of year it wouldn't be as, because the trees wouldn't have any leaves on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the spring... In the fall, it's really neat because you just you drop down in there and white picket fence and pecan trees on both sides. You wouldn't, you know, it's kind of like you lose track of where you are. It looks well, like somewhere else. You know, it's there. This time of year is the festival season, and their last big festival is March 29th and 30th uh, at in Tubac. It's, it's the spring art walk, so that'd be a good time to go down. See and and what do they say? Where art and history meet? Boy, do they! Wow. Tubac. Yeah. And there's some neat stuff in the in the lobby or the restaurant in there. Some artifacts and old historical memorabilia, chaps and spurs and stuff hanging on the wall and brands and different things. Neat, neat spot. 
Well, it's been a lot of fun having the staycation and the expansion of this fourth hour of the program to talk about all things Arizona, which led us to a conversation with Heidi Osselier, who wrote Arizona's Deadliest Gunfight, a story that dates back to, uh, well, it's after the, the shootout at the OK Corral. This was in 1918, and it just so happens that Jay Harper, we you, you got a little little tie to this event. Well, you called me. You weren't a trigger man, but no, I was a little before my time. <laughs> well, we when we discussed this, what two weeks ago? Uh, uh, two or three. Yeah, and so you can catch the podcast. Or eight. I don't remember. Yeah, you can you can <laughs> tie. Oh, Gary's telling us it's two, and then uh, so you can if you're interested in the story, you can hear Heidi talk about the whole event, and then Jay has a some things to. What so yeah, Ro, uh, Romy had reached out when. You were going to have Heidi on, and we couldn't quite make it work to, to be there that day. But he said, you have some connections to that. And I said, well, yeah, a little bit. But um, So my great-grandfather, A.G. Walker, was a was deputy in Klondike at the time. His brother-in-law is Kane Wooten, who is one of the guys on the posse that was killed in the gunfight. So, so did Kane marry Walker's sister? Uh, other, other way around. Okay. Uh, A.G. Walker married a Wooten. A Wooten sister. Uh, so sis. a sister of Kane. Yes. And back up for anybody that hasn't or missed that, that broadcast or not familiar with the story. This happens. Uh, it's a mining cabin up in the woods, and there's four men in it. A father, two sons, and their hired hand. Correct. And this posse is going up there after them to serve warrants for draft evasion for World War One. And where is it? Where is the cabin? Mm-hmm. So it's in the Galero Mountains, which is, you know, if you were in Safford, you would kind of go north a little bit from Safford. It's pretty remote, even today. The Galeros are, there's really no, there's no highways that go through the Galeros. So you've got kind of Aravipa Canyon on one side and and uh, then the highway to Safford on the other side. So I guess it's south of Safford. But um uh, it's uh, it's really remote even today. So that and you can you can today hike in or there's a hiking trail or ride horses into Powers Cabin or Power Gardens and and see it. I have not ever been there. I'd love to go, but um, so it was pretty remote. You could uh, in that day. It's kind of a weird combination of time because there was there was cars, motorized vehicles that you could get to certain places. Um, and then there's, you know, they had to, I think you could get to Safford with motorized car. Then they had to take a, a, a wagon or a, or horseback into the mountains and there's no road into, even today, there's no road into the cabin. So it's, uh, it was pretty remote. It, it, and when they, uh, and Walker, your grand, was that, that's your grandfather? Great grandfather. Great grandfather. They asked him to go along originally. Well, he, yeah, I mean, uh, the opportunity was there, and he just said it's not worth it. You know, it's too too dangerous. Smart I mean, guy. So, so if you go back in, in, in history, and I think it mentions this either in the book or the— or the uh, Documentary. Maybe it was the documentary. There was, uh, there was a number of these around the country, uh, draft evaders, draft dodgers, that were um, being pursued. And there was a number of shootouts and gunfights and guys killed over it, and— you know, I think he just had the foresight enough to say, yeah, you know, they'll, have, they'll have to come to town. Some they got to come to town to get supplies eventually. 
Um, so we, no, if we really no want him, walking up there, we really them, we'll want just... him. You know, there's, there's, yeah. So he was, he was pretty wise. And, you know, he went on to be the warden at the at the Arizona State Penitentiary, and then the first uh, uh, head of the highway department when they created the highway department. The way I understood it too was they were supposed to wait. They weren't supposed to go charging up the mountain. The order was, you know, when they came to town. There's a lot of, you know, and they probably had other opportunities. I think there was just some. You know, it was kind of one of those things that these guys were kind of one of those families that weren't understood. They were seclusive. They didn't mingle with the rest of society. So that makes you a little suspicious or different and not much different than today in, in a lot of respects. That You know, so they they were probably not given the benefit of the doubt. And, and they were breaking the law. I mean, at the end of the day, you know— it, a lot of books and a lot of things always kind of tend to slide to their favor to some degree, and certainly the measures taken were probably excessive. And and getting tried for first-degree murder is what I don't understand. I mean, it was certainly nothing they did was premeditated. They were? They were attacked. I mean, they're not attacked, but, I mean, they were surrounded in a cabin, and a shootout ensued no matter who started it. But I don't think they premeditated having the guys come to their cabin. And didn't Heidi say they didn't even tell them who they were? I mean, they just kind of show up and— Tell them to come outside and didn't announce who they I th- were. I think the the, the the statement was just, you know, I think Mr. Power opened the door to probably go out and use the restroom or really— and, and, Well, and, and they had heard commotion. They heard the, a little bit the of— horse no, The horse made the a noise. And so mountain so lion country, bear country, yeah. probably going to— you know, Protect your livestock and, you know, raise your, you know, raise your hands and drop your weapon and shoot, shot started and— you know, we don't know. So, you know, there's a comment made. One yeah. thing she said, I said, how how did the results end up like this? You've got four guys in a cabin smaller than most bedrooms today, and they live, and the four guys outside, three of them die. How are you outside, and and you're the one that gets killed, and the guys that are, like, shooting fish in a barrel survive? And she said, well, they were standing out in the open, and that tells me that, they probably weren't there to ambush them. If they're all just standing out in front Correct. of the door, yeah. they weren't. They weren't there with harsh and with, with intent to kill. And it was. He came out with his gun to see what was going on. Seven thirty in the morning in a canyon, uh, middle of winter, and so it's dark. You've been up all night traveling. Your nerves are shot. It, it could have been just an accidental misfire, the first shot, and then everything just went downhill from there. Well, and you're taking the word of who shot first from. Whoever, too. So, you, you know, I mean, I, there's a there's a statement made in the documentary about uh, one of the powers shooting Kane Wooten. He stuck his gun through the or shot through the cabin wall as he was walking by and shot him in the belly. Well, the autopsy said he was shot in the back. And if he shot through the wall, how would you know if he was come? Which so, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's an unfortunate, you know, um, set of circumstances, you know, that probably was overplayed by. A number of people and now how many times over the years around uh, family gatherings did this story ever come up or was it just not not, not even mentioned not very not hardly at all um you know the the wootens or you know i mean it, it you know so it's my great-grandfather's brother-in-law so i mean maybe at a at a family reunion every few years it, it got talked about i can just remember my grandmother so ag walker's um, daughters that so the niece of Kane Wooten um, 
just saying, talking about when she was a little girl. And of course, they lived out on a on a ranch. And you know, sometimes that it was mentioned if these you know people as they're riding their horses to their places would stop at a ranch and water their stock or whatever. That if they came by to not you know don't socialize with them again, just kind of pointing out that they were just perceived as just kind of a little different, kind of a little standoffish. But uh, that's all I I really remember her ever talking about it. It's our wide open road. The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour with Sanderson Ford. We were on the road yesterday, did a northern Arizona loop, left uh, the Roadrunner Cafe and Saloon at about 8 o'clock in the morning. We met with Lance and took our Rosie on the House Sanderson Ford promotional transit through the Northern Arizona Loop, visiting all of our partners. First hit Prescott, then we went up to Ash Fork, went over to Williams, and had a great cheeseburger at the Cruisers uh, old cafe right on Route 66 in downtown uh, Williams on Route 66. And oh, my God, that was a, an incredible cheeseburger. I'm, I would go back just for that. All the rodeos we've been to at Williams, you'd never have time to leave the rodeo. Get over to downtown, have something to eat, because the waiting sometimes down in that area. Yeah. It, that it, time it, of year, it's packed with people <laughs> taking the train and doing all that stuff, too. Yeah. And, and they've got their uh, steam engine Saturdays kicking off between now yes. and, like, October in Williams along the— Have you ever taken that train? Just to do the polar— the pole you have Express taken just that. a little ways out. Yeah. yeah, you have to go in the daytime, and we'll have to. We're gonna have a train show in April. To talk about what's coming up with the steam mm-hmm. engine going out. Um, did you go ahead? And, well, it came across Flagstaff down through Cornville, and we'll talk about a little bit in our outdoor living hour next. Just the amount of water, but with all of this rain and all the different sites that uh, it creates. Yesterday morning, going across Carefree Highway, coming up to Lake Pleasant. There was this heavy fog across the whole lake, and as you drive down underneath the mm. dam, that fog came over and covered that entire dry riverbed going down. It probably wasn't dry yesterday mm. yesterday morning. It might have actually been running a little bit. But there is a uh, weather photos are wanted uh, at the Arizona Republic. We'll post the email you can submit them to. But I, I, there were people pulled over everywhere taking pictures yesterday. So there and was an atmospheric riv- river. We, I, we didn't really <laughs> see it here in Phoenix. <laughs> you, the amount of water in every single river and stream will cover all the different uh, tributaries we, we you drive over on those routes and what they look like. But uh, you, we'll post this. You send it to mike.meister at arizonarepublic.com. If you had a good weather photo from Arizona from this week. Well, your sister Julia in Minnesota posted a little video to our chat of um, Oak Creek Canyon and the waterfall. Wow. What a treat that would be. And and there's already wildflowers galore. I mean, it's just going to be in another couple of weeks. If you want to take a little road trip to see wildflowers, I don't think it matters where you go. <laughs> as long uh, as we don't heat up, we'll be all right. Yeah. Well, heating up will make them pop. It just won't, they just won't last as well, long. Yeah, but, we don't want to yeah, fry them. Yeah. yeah. What are some of your favorite places? You know, kind of out there by the Galero Mountains where this power ranch shootout was, as you get down off those foothills, is in a bad area to go 
enjoy well, some the, beautiful Arizona scenery. You know, the the old drive, the old take, the old highway to Tucson. So you mm-hmm. know, through through Florence Junction, down through Oracle, that's usually pretty good. Picacho Peak is very famous, obviously. The the uh, Apache Trail mm. is you know, and there's a lot of wildflowers around Roosevelt Lake and you know along the Apache Trail. If you want to stop at Tortilla Flat for your cheeseburger, yeah. If you, you is know, that all you think about? <laughs> the well, best we place to have a cheeseburger. Week, that's right. After Chasers yesterday, uh, yeah. Roger got all. us on a cheeseburger. I was going to say Romy's going to have his own cheeseburger book now. You can hike <laughs> and have a cheeseburger. You can drive and have a cheeseburger. You know, whatever you want. And, Ride you a know, horse, and if you just want to see poppies the, between here and Bartlett Lake. There's just amazing amounts. Of, Already? Of, You've seen Oh, no, I don't know about okay. yet. But in when it's good, which it will be this year, um, the drive from here to, to Horseshoe or here to Bartlett Lake is pretty darn good. And it's pretty close. I mean, you can... It's been a few years since I've taken that drive because it, it, after the Cave Creek Complex fire, I really didn't want to see that area again for a while. But I bet with all this rain, it's, it's going to be just a green blanket. Yeah, it's it's... Pretty cool. I mean, there's obviously burnt trees still sticking up and cactus skeletons, but the other stuff, the, the grasses and the shrubs and the forbs and the flowers are pretty spectacular in that spot. And then as, as spring turns into summer, you know, you can just, just go higher, you know, because it's going to be really good in the high country this year, too. So Bloody Basin. You know, take the, take the road to the White the... Mountains, you know, through Payson up on the rim over towards, you know, the... Uh, Pine Top, Sholo, you know, and that McNary in that area is going to be pretty spectacular. Well, if you're looking for something to do this weekend, you aren't looking very hard. (laughs) (laughs) There was just a few ideas and suggestions for you around this beautiful state of Arizona. And we'll uh, we'll be back at the 8 o'clock hour, Outdoor Living Hour. We have Jay Harper already in studio, as you've heard. If you've got a landscape or garden question, you can talk with fourth-generation Arizona, third-generation gardener. At one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight. Rosie for you. Text questions at four one one nine two three or send an email to info at rosieonthehouse.com.